This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual 2022. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and I'm pleased to bring to you uh, the Stock Pitch World Cup and it's Team Australia that's going to be presenting right now. Moderating Team Australia is Fadi Dia, better known as at the Gladiator HC on Twitter. I've known Fadi for a very long time. He's my go-to guy for all things Australian microcap investing. So with that, Fadi, thank you, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, and you know it's fantastic that we're doing a stock World Cup about five or six hours after Australia just won um, their game. So we're going to the round of sixteen. So I have no sleep, but you know it's worth it. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And look, you know I have no favorites in the Stock Pitch World Cup or whatever, but you know, hey, let's hope uh, let's hope Australia can do the same thing here, right? So, um, you know, before we dig into um, some of the pitches that we're about to hear today, you know. Why Australia, Father? You know what? Real quick, for those who haven't been following or don't know what's going on in the Australian microcap community and the markets right now, you know, why is this a time that you think folks should be looking at it? Yeah. So if you look at markets around the world, financial markets, um, Europe and the US in particular, so you have a very strong VC market. So when you have new startups, new tech companies, new mining companies, technology, um, what they do is they're not normally going to the VC world. Those that become kind of successful, get valued at say 100, 200 million market cap, they then list on one of the exchanges, right? In Australia, we don't have that. Um, so what we have is a very, very strong and robust micro cap market. So what, so for example, to list in, in on the NASDAQ, you know, you'd need somewhere around 100 to 200 million dollars market cap valuation. In Australia, we only have a 5 million valuation uh, roadblock to get over. So what a lot of companies do is some of the best up and coming entrepreneurs and new companies, right? They come to the ASX from all around the world. They they list, they obviously try their best to progress. And once successful, they'll dual list or they'll move into one of the largest stock exchanges. So we have access to some of the, the, the best up and coming companies um, globally because they simply can't list anywhere else. And if they don't want to go the VC route, the only other route is by the ASX. So we've got about uh Last, I, I ran my report just a couple of months ago. We've got about 650 companies with a market cap of sub 50 million, right? No other exchange has that. You know, the, the Canadian exchanges are pretty good in terms of breadth, but there's just no liquidity. So it's, it's very hard to generate that liquidity there. Um, we, we don't have that issue here. So uh, for, for micro cap investors, I think they definitely need some exposure to the ASX. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to uh, end it so that we can begin it. So with that, Fadi, let's dig right into Team Australia stock pitches. Let's go. All right. Well, first off for Team Australia, we have Matt Jossie from Maven Funds Management. Hey, Matt. Hey, Fadi. Very happy to be here. Should I, awesome. uh, should I, should I kick us off? Should I jump in? Jump straight in. Yeah, cool. I'll give a quick disclaimer. So we own this business I'm going to talk about, and I'll let anyone read the disclaimer if they want to work through it. Um, you know, past performance is not indicative of future performance, all that good stuff. Uh, very quickly, what we'd like to look for at Maven is um, businesses that are, we call monsters, um, kind of inspired by Thomas Phelps, um, 100 to 1 in the stock market. Basically, businesses that start out small, they tend to have a unique edge, um, have superior management teams and are misunderstood. And that last part is really important. Um, it makes it means you have multiple times during the journey to invest, which um, can be really valuable, um, all based on some companies he studied back in the 1970s that increased more than 100-fold. Um, and we think Mader Group is has the potential to be one of those businesses. Um, so Mader Group, we think, is a um, underfollowed capital compound net. Um, it's repeating a proven business model, um, very high inside ownership over 75%. Uh, the founder is still heavily involved in the business, um, upside to fair value, but most importantly, um, we think is increasing that intrinsic value over time. Um, so I'll get into a bit more of what it is. It ticks a lot of boxes for us. I won't go through all this. Uh, this is kind of like the laundry list of stuff we like to look for. Um, so what is Mater Group? So Mater was started by Luke Mater in 2005. Uh, he was working in the pool borough. Um, 
for anyone in the US watching, uh, think Western Australia, very dusty, hot um, place. He was working as a diesel mechanic for some of the big mining equipment. So, you know, diggers, dump trucks, that kind of thing. Um, and he saw an opportunity. He was working for one of what you call the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers like Caterpillar or Komatsu who make them equipment. And then when you, like when you need to get your car serviced, um, you, you typically go back to the place that you bought it from to get it serviced. What he saw though was that those incumbents when it came to servicing they kind of saw it as like a cash cow um so you know it was really they they offered an expensive service it was quite slow to respond to customers um kind of difficult to work with um high quality technicians but just not not providing great service and, and didn't treat their workers that well as well and these are really you know skilled um people basically these diesel mechanics so he saw it as a recipe ripe for disruption uh, he launched Mater himself then just himself and a few mates uh, and it basically grew from there um and so it's grown extremely well as we'll touch on but just to nail down that business model so Mater's kind of in the middle between these original equipment manufacturers like Caterpillar and their servicing and smaller operators and labor houses. Um, and so what Mater does, it's it's cheaper than those OEMs, um, those original equipment manufacturers, but it offers a faster service um, and just a really high quality, you know, high morale staff. Um, but it's also, um, so that, that makes it basically better for, for people to use um, versus the OEMs. But it's also got advantages versus the smaller end of the market because it has scale. It's, it's one it's the only operator that really reached scale and now global scale. Um, really good systems uh, means that because of that scale, it can respond more quickly to to um, customers basically and get get things fixed, which is a big deal because you know if this mine equipment's down, the mine loses potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so Mater today again started in two thousand five um, over well guiding to over five hundred fifty million of revenue, um, over two thousand staff. Uh, Kager the last five years of over thirty percent for revenue. And again, that's during COVID, which is kind of a tough time for this business because it's a labor business. You don't want to be locked out of an area as they were for a while in WA. Um, and so, yeah, guiding for another 36% growth this year in the latest guidance, which was recently upgraded. Um, Q1 revenue growth was 48%. Um, I'll get to that again in a sec. Um, I think it's got a bit of a, a flywheel. Everyone talks about these <clears throat> these days, but essentially as it scales, it's offering a better service to its clients and a better um, place to work for its employees because they get to be deployed more frequently and with more variety. And that variety is a really key point because uh, these diesel mechanics don't want to be stuck in the same, you know, boring mine out in the dusty Pilbara. They like to move around and they like to have some variety and try different things. And Maiden now, particularly with international, means that they can offer all sorts of experiences all around the world. Um, their staff are typically young, you know, energetic, uh, mostly men, um, young and energetic girls as well that want to travel and see the world and try different things. Um, it's scaling the same type of model uh, in different verticals within that diesel mechanic and now fixed infrastructure and major energy but it means that they've got a model that has been replicated um, repeatedly and it's now grown into larger markets uh, so the north america canada etc um, which are also higher margins so the margins in north america ebit margins are almost twice as high as in australia which is where they're, where they're dominant today um, and it's kind of a rare story, I think, scaling an existing model into larger markets that are also more lucrative. Um, what we think the market's getting wrong, so what we think is misunderstood, and the same reason I didn't like it when I first saw it, was it's a mining services company. And a lot of mining services companies typically, at least throughout a cycle, kind of suck. Um, they're capital intensive, very cyclical, very levered to the exploration or construction phase of mining. So that big, you know, peak of the boom, a lot of mining services companies are used. Um, but made is different because it's focused on maintenance work. It's really about is the mine operating, not, you know, is it expanding or exploring? So it's just tied to production, basically, as long as um, the, you know, mine is still producing a lot, it's going to need equipment, which wears down and needs to be maintained. Uh, it's also got quite modest capital requirements um, in Australia. They're just a, just a Hilux um, to travel out to the site. Um, that means it has quite high returns on incremental invested capital of 25 to 30% by our estimates. And that's quite different, again, from traditional mining services. A lot of those companies are often, um, they need you know big expensive drilling equipment and other capital intensive um, stuff, which means that, that you don't really see the cash during the good times. Um, but we think Meta has been able to expand, you know, organically as a result of that 
Um, again, production, not exploration or construction. And it grew throughout the last mining boom. So we look back at how other mining services companies performed um, during the kind of mining crash in you know 2012 to 15. Um, Meta Group still continued to grow revenue during that period, was still profitable. Um, it did take, a, you know, it wasn't completely smooth sailing. Profit margins took a bit of a hit, but it's still growing, um, you know, quite strongly during that period. Um, and we that's quite different to other companies that we looked at. So we looked at 11 publicly listed mining companies during that time. Uh, four of those went out of business altogether. Um, of the seven that survived, um, their average revenue fell by about 15%. So basically, we think the market is getting it wrong because it's kind of lumping it in with other cyclical mining services companies. Um Aligned A players, really high quality team. Again, the founders and directors own um, about 75% of shares. Uh, the senior leaders are all incentivized to hit organic revenue growth targets, not through acquisition, um, and pro sorry, profit growth targets, not not revenue growth. Um, so really aligned with shareholders, we think. And everyone I've dealt with there is just kind of an A player, I guess is how I'd frame it. You know, the CFOs also off starting a business in the US. Um, you know, the investor relations person's also in a really important marketing and recruiter um, person for their most important new expansion. So just a really high quality team. Uh, we spoke to a lot of scuttlebutt, talked to some competitors. Uh, here's you know one that we asked about how Meta compares. They said, I don't think it's a comparison. To be fair, Meta's in a league of their own. They're far, far above. They've got a huge reach with money. They have the ability to have marketing departments advertising everywhere. That was about attracting employees. And then from the customer's perspective, everyone knows that Meta is the go-to because they are going to be able to get people to your site. And that's really key. And that's where scale kind of becomes an advantage. There are some risks. Um, so I think China slowing down is something that I'm watching. Iron ore is still 40% of the business, although that's shrinking as Mater expands internationally um, and into other business lines in Australia. But um, you know, China needs iron ore to make steel. It needs steel um, traditionally to make a lot of infrastructure and apartments. I think both of those could slow down quite aggressively. So that's something I'm watching. Um, on the positive side for Mater, though, you know, its customers that it works with are typically the lowest cost iron ore producers. So if you think of the cost curve in mining, we would expect them to still be producing tons, um, even if prices fell quite significantly. And that's really what drives Mater's business is that they're producing tons, wearing out equipment that needs to be maintained. Um, and also Mater can redeploy labor if some areas are hot and some areas are cold. So provided that, you know, the whole world isn't all cold at the same time, I guess, there's still that ability to redeploy labor say from Australia into the US and other areas that are booming. Um, there's also the risk long-term of if the culture breaks down. We think Mater's culture is a really key part of that growth. So at the moment there, as I said, that most recent quarter, over I think around 48% revenue growth, but that was really driven, well, driven by two areas. Australia is still growing very fast, over 30%, but the North American area, which includes a newly launched Mater Canada, um, a Mater energy business in general, North America, um, business, it grew over 200% that quarter, um, extremely strong. You know, the business is kind of potential to grow fast into a much larger market. Um, and currently, America's, you know, much smaller than Australia, but we think it can grow to be much larger over time. Um, other, other verticals include fixed infrastructure as well in Australia. So quite a lot to work with. Uh, I won't go through all this, but um, we think they've got kind of small compounding modes. So culture is really hard to imitate, um, got a quality reputation, scale and utilization, better systems. It's all just kind of adding to each other. There's nothing that when you first look at this, it jumps out to you, but we think that in combination, it's it's really powerful. Um, yeah, so that was that was all the all the kind of quick run through of the, of the pitch and uh, hopefully hit 10 minutes, um, but happy to answer any questions that you might have. Awesome. Thanks, mate. That was, that was really good. Um, firstly, just to confirm for those that are listening, I don't own any Matter shares. Um, I, I did note down a few questions, Matt. Uh, first around um, the leadership team. So they've got, the, mm -hmm. the founders got 56% of the shares, 75% sitting with um, the board level uh, employees. So, you know, if I can see here, Jim, Jim is probably nearing retirement age, owns more than half the company. Um, have you spoken to them about a potential succession plan? What's their plans when he'd 
eventually decides to take a break or move on or yeah so it's it's luke um jim's non-executive chairman kind of brought in as a professional um chairman um before the ipo but luke made is the founder that owns about 56 percent um and then another director craig burden owns the rest he has kind of um passed down already so justin newich is the ceo luke's not ceo he's um you know his role is strategic growth so he was really fundamental in going to the us and driving that um he's still heavily involved in the business but he's not ceo and um, I think it's a good balance. Like I love founder managers, but this is now quite a scaled business, right? You kind of think of Luke and his startup days and a, and a truck in the Pilbara. Um, I think he's, you know, like you classically see a founder. I, the biggest driver for him, I think, is keeping the culture alive. Um, I really like the way that he's designed incentives so that the rest of the team aren't incentivized to grow by, um, you know, acquiring other businesses. It's it's driven around organic growth, and uh, yeah. So I think it, I think he's there, um, a to keep them like being aggressive around growth and to keep the culture alive. And um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a really strong kind of team as a result. Okay, cool. Um, and you know, I know the mining sector pretty well because you know, it's one of the sectors I'm very bullish on but if we do experience you know from a macro perspective some kind of global slowdown which is kind of predicted by everybody these days which probably means it won't happen but if it does happen then you know obviously mining will be impacted um there, even though there would be some so obviously some mines will still be operating because you're focusing on just those that are in production there would be a slowdown so what's the balance sheet look like if we do go through some kind of you know two to three years slowdown globally and, and mining companies giving the classic example of iron ore, reduce their production? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so they do have uh, some debt, which is basically related to the vehicles that they purchase, but um, it pays a dividend and has been you know, internally funded this whole way. So it's not um, aggressive debt for expansion. I think they, they keep it quite conservative, tying it to how much receivables they expect. You know, it's, it's a percentage of their receivables. So I think that Luke's basically always planned it kind of conservatively in, in that sense. It's also one where you'd get a lot more cash flow if they did stop growing because they're kind of constantly reinvesting so much into growth for CapEx. So, um, you know, both on a working capital and a, a CapEx sense. So I think that you'd see profitability could fall during like a global recession, but I think you'd actually see a lot more cash flows come through at that time. Um, and, and again, it, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see it if it happens, but I think the other thing is just their ability to, um, focus on production rather than growth. So as long as those mines are still producing, um, and typically they're not with the high cost, probably in made Canada, they are with some high cost um, producers and the oil sands there, but a lot of their, you know, the rest of their businesses typically focus on lower costs. So those mines would still be operating, would still need, you know, to put out the tons. You don't really see tons yep. dip that much. You see price. So that's where we think it would survive. But of course the proof will be in the pudding during the next downturn. Yeah. And let's look at the other side of the coin because I'm hugely bullish on metals, um, battery metals, uh, zinc, lithium, nickel, graphite, etc. We've seen the the maps or the graphs that have said we need 100 new graphite mines, you know, X, dozens of new lithium mines. So, and that's all going to be in the next you know, 10 to 15 years. So if we do experience a big boom, which is which is something I'm thinking about, how quickly can they grow? To be able to service that it's, demand, they can grow very quickly. And um, so, in the United States, last quarter, year over year, they grew two hundred percent. It's really constrained. Uh, it's typically a labor constrained business, so it's trying to attract the best, you know, talent, diesel mechanics, and that's mostly the handbrake on that growth. And and but you know, I say handbrake again, they still grew two hundred percent in North America. Um, so yeah, that that's basically it. Is how fast can they get talent in? And that's where it kind of comes back to all those advantages that they try and build of having been a great place to work, um, having variety, etc. Um, so I think that they kind of thrive in this environment where we have you know tight labor markets, but they're the best place to go to go. Um, but yeah, that's what interests me about it is they can they can scale very much up. They see Canada particularly as exploding, as you described as like a, a vortex. Um, so yeah, I think they can, but they're not again tied to the exploration phase. They should hopefully ride up as, you know, I, I agree with you that there's a huge potential for this um mining for, you know, green mining or whatever you want to call it, um, over yep. the next few decades. So yeah. What have they done in the last year to kind of uh, you spoke about the tight labor market? You know, it's been it's it's an issue everywhere at the moment. Mm. Um so did they do anything innovative to actually be able to find people and not have to pay them an extra 50%, which is going to reduce their margins and probably have a lot of these mines reduce a lot of the work that they're doing in this space? So what have they done in the last year to combat that? 
Yeah, I'd say it's like a lot of small things. So um, they have a reputation in the industry that's good. They're kind of, they say when people join, they're kind of stunned that they have such a tight culture, which they just don't get, particularly if they're, you know, they're competing with a lot of mining employees um, and labor houses, and it just isn't the same, I guess, drive there. Um, they'll do stuff like, you know, give away promotions, maybe um, sign someone up, they can get a dirt bike or some other promotion or something. But other kind of structural things is their best employees often get to be deployed over so they have an international division as well outside North America. You know, people, these young guys love to go and work in Africa or somewhere and have a, you know, a lot of fun there and experience new things. Um, they just recruited people, you know, bringing them from Australia into Canada. So that's been a big recruitment drive. So it's just been, yeah, using their scale and being smart about how they market to people. It's, it's not one thing that they've been able to do that I've seen. It's just a lot of, a lot of operational excellence, I guess, trying to, trying to get people in. Awesome. Thanks. And I'll just share a story to finish off. Many, many years ago, the Pilbara is known, I'm, I'm glad you shared the area, is known in Australia for Pilbara Metals or Minerals, which is a big, big $15 billion lithium company. Um, I bought them when they were two cents um, many, many, many years ago. And before I had any idea what I was actually doing, ended up selling it for three cents because I got bored and they hit a high of $4 uh, this year. So that Pilbara area will forever be etched into my, my memory. So thank you. <laughs> Reminding me again of that. That's an incredible story. Apologies, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. remind of it. No, uh, oh, good. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing that great info. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So next up, we have Michael Wu, who's a full-time uh, private investor from Melbourne in Australia. Michael, how are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Fatty. Thanks a lot for having me on this program. It's great to be part of it. No, great. Thank you for coming. Um, and today, you're talking about SOM. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the company I'm presenting today is Sonamed, um, and it's a medical device maker. Um, the ticker is SOM on the Australian Stock Exchange. And I'd like to disclose that I currently hold um, a position in the stock mentioned. So first of all, Sonamed creates oral appliances to treat obstructive sleep apnea. It's truly a global company with roughly 55% of revenues coming from Europe, 40% from North America, and the remainder from the Asia-Pacific region. It's currently the largest oral appliance maker in the world with a market capitalization of 114 million Australian dollars. Obstructive sleep apnea is a serious disorder where the sufferer repeatedly stops breathing while they are sleeping in the middle of the night. It generally happens when the throat muscles relax and blocks the airways. Some symptoms include loud snoring and being drowsy throughout the day. However, if left untreated, um, it could lead to increased risks in heart attack, stroke, diabetes, and heart failure. It's a severely undiagnosed and very common condition with an estimated one in five uh, males in OECD countries currently suffering this disorder. Um, the CPAP machine, where a patient wears a mask and has air pumped into their mouths and nose, is currently the gold standard treatment for OSA. The companies that make CPAP machines include Resmed, Fisher and Piker and Phillips, and they've all been very big multi-baggers over the past decade. Um, the CPAP machine is very effective. Um, however, it's hard for patients to tolerate. As high as 50% of patients treated with CPAP give up within the first six months. Surgery is another but much less common type of treatment, and it generally involves the removal of tonsils, and reducing the size of the tongue or reducing um, some of the soft palate within the mouth um, to remove any obstruction. Oral appliances are the least intrusive of all. It's customized. It's a customized mouth guard that brings the lower jaw forward to open up the airways. Um, and more importantly, uh, it's very effective at treating mild to moderate forms of sleep apnea. It's also very easily tolerated. So once a patient starts using one, um, they usually don't stop. There's no need to wear a mask, no air being pushed down your throat, no electricity required, 
no regular cleaning of tubes or masks, and no noise. So I believe Sonomed is interesting for a few reasons. Firstly, its um, underlying top-line performance is very strong and has been obscured by some company-specific and macro events recently. From 2017 to 2019, the company engaged in a pivot of strategy in the US in order to prevent dentists from overcharging for the appliance fitting Sonomed established its own sleep centers and its own fitting practices. When dentists caught hold of this, they began boycotting the product. And by late 2018, the company de admitted defeat and reverted back to their previous business model. The whole ordeal set the company back around three to four years in North America. The second event was the global pandemic. So during the depth of the pandemic, sleep centers and dentist practices were closed. So patients couldn't get diagnosed for OSA and they couldn't get fitted for an oral appliance. But during 2020, uh, even during 2021, the stress on the hospital systems, especially in Europe, reduced the ability for patients to be treated for OSA. Despite these two events, the company managed to grow its top line by 8.7% over the past six years, but this underrepresents the underlying performance. For example, the European division, which was not affected by the pivot of strategy in the US, grew by 20% per annum in the years preceding the pandemic, outpacing the CPAP market darlings. The company grew 17% on a constant currency basis last financial year and is guiding to grow at above 20% this year. Another reason the company is interesting is the upcoming introduction of an internet-connected version of its oral plants. In 2019, the company conducted a wide-ranging survey with fleet physicians about oral appliances. It was uncovered that one of the top reasons that physicians were skeptical about prescribing oral appliances um, was due to the lack of real-time monitoring and of, of effectiveness and compliance. Sonomed is currently attempting to address this shortfall with a product called Rest Assure an oral appliance with electronic sensors embedded in the device that will track the effectiveness and compliance throughout the night. The data will be made available to the patient and the sleep physician so they can monitor and discuss about the effectiveness of their treatment. Regulatory submission to the FDA and other regulators are happening right now and Commercialization is expected in April 2023 with um, the device in patients' mouths by the end of 2023. Rest Assure is a game changer and brings monitoring in line with the high-end CPAP machines. It's intended to address the concerns of sleep physicians and encourage them to prescribe more oral appliances over CPAP. Should the product be successful, it will likely improve demand for Sonomed's offerings. There are also some tremendous tailwinds. The OSA treatment market is expected to continue to grow at between 6 to 12% per annum over the next several years. Taking the US as an example, it is estimated that 80% of people with sleep apnea is currently not diagnosed and not treated. Oral appliances only account for 10% share of the treatment market. In Scandinavian countries, this share can be as high as 50%. So the potential is very high to improve share in the US and also other Western European countries. And finally, it's trading at a price that puts it on a very undemanding valuation. It's currently trading at just one-time sales with a 60% gross margin across the group.
The company is targeting over 20% revenue growth per annum over the next few years. In 2021, the company was also free cash flow positive, but the CapEx investment into RestAssure pushed it back. Um, but the company has enough funding to get back to free cash flow positive, which should be only a couple of years away. And that's my pitch today. So, yeah, thanks, oh, thanks for your Very time, everyone. Um, my, my father actually has sleep apnea, and he uh, gave up within six months because he, just, he couldn't see. take the machine. Um, yeah, you should get him hooked up with the Sodom sales team and see if you can give it a go. I've personally, been, I've been to a few of the appointments with him. This was never raised as an, as an opportunity. So are they targeting Australia as a market or? Yeah, or so Sonomed is an Australian company um, that was established in Australia um, and maybe around 5% of the current revenues is Australian-based. So they definitely have a presence here. But I think um, the CPAP manufacturers have just got a great marketing machine going on that have yeah. convinced a lot of physicians that it is the right way to go. So there's just been a whole lack of awareness for oral appliances itself. And what's the cost of the, the MouthGuard product? Yeah, the MouthGuard product. So um, generally in countries, in European countries and probably in Australia as well. It's about $1,000 US um, for the appliance itself and also fitting by the dentist. Now, um, this can get it quite a bit higher in the US, especially if the dentist is gouging the price a little bit. It can be get as high as 3000 US. Wow. Yeah, so it really depends on wh whether you get um, handed the right dentist to do the fitting or not really right but i'm assuming the manufacturing cost would be quite low for such a small product yeah ab absolutely I, I think it's uh the device itself is around yeah 500 dollars. yeah and i'm not sure how it works in the us or europe but I, I know the cpap machines in australia the government funds part of that on behalf of the individual through medicare it, would this device fall under the same category of medicine where the person gets some money back if they decide to to purchase it yeah, I'm not sure about the, the reimbursement within Australia, but um, Europe especially, a lot of the Scandinavian countries, um, Germany, Netherlands, um, the oral appliance is fully reimbursed. In the US, it's there's reimbursement as well. So it's on par with CPAP in terms of reimbursement. It's probably not 100% um, as applicable as them. Okay, okay. A couple other questions. Around the rest assured product, that, that would be a game changer. Is that additional revenue coming in to the company for that or is that just a, an additional add-on that the person could get for the original purchase price? Yeah, I, I think it's an additional add-on. So um, it, it won't be uh, a different line that will increase revenue. It's more to help... Um, sales to the physicians because it offers compliance and effectiveness monitoring so it's an easier sell um, for physicians so they have some way of monitoring the effectiveness of their patients it would be because I'm, I'm sure the CPAP because my father's experience was you spend overnight and then they'll give you the results when you're in the actual clinic but when you go home i don't know if the CPAP machine actually gives you the results overnight of how you're breathing yes so I know the high-end ResMed machines, they would, um, yeah, record the data and send it off to the cloud so both the physician okay. and the patient have a, have a view of that. Okay. So that that's the gap it's trying to bridge there. It's very important. Um, so the last question I had is if, the, if they have a 70% margin on the product, then why aren't they f uh, free cash flow positive? Is it the, Do they have debt or is it um, – where, where are their costs coming from? Yeah, so – um, they were free cash flow positive in FY21, but in the past couple of years, they've been spending more money on this new technology product, rest assured. So um, that's just put them back into cash flow negative territory. But um, in a couple of years, when, when the sales ramp up again, they, they should be really in cash flow positive 
territory again they're not too far off that yeah. awesome well that, that was fantastic thank you for the pitch actually a really exciting company i might add it to my list to do a bit of research on um so thank you for your time michael any final comments uh no yeah thanks for having me fadi uh, much enjoyed it awesome thank you michael and also right. just to disclose to everyone listening um i'm all i don't currently own any shares in this company uh, just for compliance purposes Okay, next up for Team Australia, we have Dr. David. David is a full-time investor. He's a medical doctor, and he's an advisor to a company called 62 Capital. David, how are you going? Very well. How are you, Fadi? Great, thanks. Uh, so today, you're going to be talking to us about Emiria. Correct, correct. Um, so I guess just to get the ball rolling, um, I personally am a shareholder of uh, Emiria. Um, it's an ASX-listed company. Um, uh, a clinical stage biotech company uh, with a focus on uh, neuroscience and mental health. I guess just perhaps uh, to give a snapshot, it's best to start off talking about its clinical development programs. So um, the company is currently running phase three trials on its um, ultra pure solid oral, oral dose form EMDRX5. Um, for an over-the-counter opportunity with the, with the TGA, the Australian regulator, uh, to treat uh, the symptoms of psychological distress and is also in the process of developing a number of other um, solid oral dose forms of cannabidiol medicine um, for major FDA indications. <clears throat> in addition to that, um, you, know, uh, you know, investors would have heard um, a lot about, you know, the psychedelic-assisted uh, uh, medicines um, and, you know, the fact that it has uh, attracted a lot, of, a lot of investment in the last few years. So what's very, very interesting about Emiria is that they, um, um, you know, have executed a, uh, a relationship with the University of Western Australia um, to develop, um, you know, what has become now one of the largest uh, libraries of unique, uh, you know, chemical entities inspired by MDMA, um, otherwise known as, uh, you know, uh, ec ecstasy. Um, so that is very interesting. And I'll be happy to give you a bit of an, a, a, uh, an explanation as to where the company is and where it plans to be in the next, uh, you know, 12 months. <clears throat> uh, we might just start by rolling on to the next slide, just talking about um, the cannabinoid program. So... Yeah, what's very interesting with um, Emiria's uh, technology is that they have developed, um, you know, a, a world-first proprietary formulation that delivers uh, a very, very ultra-pure um, uh, cannabinoid, a synthesized cannabinoid in, an oral, in a solid oral dose form with a very, very high bioavailability. And that is very, very important because it basically allows the company to more readily engage with major global um, regulators um, to, to develop uh, re uh, registered medicines. And I guess perhaps if we go on to the next slide, <clears throat> we can understand a little bit more what that means. So, you know, I know that, uh, you, know, um, you know, seasoned in investors and in sort of small cap companies would be very well aware of the sort of uh, the boom in cannabinoid medicines uh, over the past five years. I guess what is less well understood is the fact that um, a lot of uh, a lot of these cannabinoid companies are not, um, you know, aiming to develop registered medicines, which, <clears throat> in my opinion, and and uh, uh, which, in my opinion, basically is a much clearer way to um, develop much larger valuations within within a business. So a good example of that is a company is a product called Epidiolex. Uh, initially developed by GW Pharma and um, and more recently um, acquired by Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Um, now, this for a very long time um, was the only registered FDA and TGA um, uh, medicine um, using cannabidiol um, uh, for you know, and and that's basically for some sort of rare form of seizure disorder. Um, and it just you know, based on the acquisition in you know in 2021 of US 7.2 billion, you can see that, you know, having a registered medicine can drive far more value than some of the, you know, than developing a, um, a product and, and driving sales 
through other, you know, other other channels. So what really attracted me to Emiria <clears throat> is that they are trying, they're, they're on uh, sort of on track to basically running the required uh, trials with a with a proprietary uh, product um, to achieve registration and you know hopefully replicate um, you know some of some of the value that GW created by by doing the same thing within their business. Um, so can we just go to the next slide, Rob? <clears throat> All right. So look, um, the Emiria's first pro uh, first uh, dose form EMDRX five. Um, uh, which is currently in phase three trials. Um, uh, the company uh, ran this product through a, a phase one earlier uh, this year, and they did that head to head with Epidiolex, uh, which, uh, as I mentioned on the previous slide, is the sort of the only re FDA registered cannabinoid medicine. And basically, good news for for Amiria was that it um, was very performant compared with Epidiolex. So um, it had, um, you know, equivalent bioavailability. It had a slower, um, more uh, stable release profile, and it was, and because of its ult, because its uh, MDRX five is is um, formulated with ultra pure synthesized cannabinoids, it had, um, uh, you know, less impurities and lower me metabolite measures. So. Uh, I think we'll go to the next slide, Rob. Thanks. Great. So this is a, you know, in my opinion, a great snapshot of <clears throat> of the performance of the Emiria dose form. Um, obviously, uh, you know, very similar or statistically equivalent to the bioavailability of Epidiolex oil. Um, but more importantly, if you look to the right hand side of those two um, bars. For Epidiolex and the MDRX5, you know you can see that <clears throat> the MDRX5 capsule is far more uh, performant than any of the other players um, who are sourcing their products from the traditional um, cannab uh, cannabidiol oil. Um, so you know not not only um, uh, not only is it a much purer, you know, more standardised product, uh, which allows the company to engage more readily with the regulators. But it's far more bio bioavailable, uh, which means that um, you know uh, a certain dose of the medicine, you know, can be absorbed at a at a at a much greater rate with at a, at a much greater rate within the, the human body and have much larger uh, clinical effect. We'll go to the next slide, please, Rob. Right. So just to, just wanted to touch on the um, the phase three trial, which is currently underway. So the first indication that Emiria is seeking to gain uh, registration with the TGA um, is uh, for the symptoms of psychological distress. And um, basically the company is, is aiming to um, uh, meet the criteria to get uh, in what is known in Australia as the S3 registration and uh, target uh, a major over-the-counter market in, in um in an indication uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, psychological distress. Um, currently, you know, current estimates of that of that product in that particular market um, is up to sort of, um, and this is just Australia alone, is up to forty to fifty million dollars a year. And the company is planning to use the registration here in Australia as a as a launching pad um, for um, for major. Um, registration programs in the US uh, in um, mental health um, and uh, and pain. So we'll go to the next slide. All right. <clears throat> so just a little bit about uh, the MDMA-inspired drug discovery program. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Emiria has a relationship with the University of Western Australia and um, a gentleman by the name of Professor Matt Pickett, who is a, a globally renowned expert um, in amphetamines and, and MDMA. Go to the next slide. So what's very, very interesting about um, this relationship and, and what has been achieved to date is that um, Emiria and UWA have essentially um, 
curated the largest known, uh, as far as I'm aware, um, database <clears throat> of novel um, uh, MDMA analogs with now over 140 unique compounds um, comprising the library. Um, uh, and, and those 140 compounds, uh, you know, demonstrate with demonstrated stability and purity with preclinical screening. Now, <clears throat> based on the work that, that, that uh, Emiria has done to date, um, there are a number of indications that um, have popped up as potential um, lead areas um, for, for future development, all the way from uh, neuropsychiatry um, uh, and, uh, and, and anti-fibrosis treatments. Next slide. So this is just this is just basically a, a you know a summary slide of the the company's um, uh, the steps the company is taking to develop these um, novel molecules, basically taking MDMA as an inspiration, <clears throat> designing and synthesizing new compounds for superior clinical effect or potential clinical effect, uh, screening those compounds, um, segmenting those compounds into pro uh, priority indications which as I mentioned in this case is mental health, you know, movement disorders and uh, non-neurological conditions such as fibrotic diseases. And then advancing those lead compounds through to uh, clinical studies. Next slide. So although, uh, you know, it's perhaps no surprise that um, the market has been quite difficult over the last 18 months, Still, we find that um, companies developing novel psychedelic medicines are attracting um, significant uh, valuations globally. And, you know, this is, you know, um, a, a big reason which attracted me to become, you know, a shareholder of this business alongside the, you know, the, the, the late stage um, uh, cannabinoid program was that, you know, Emiria has an immense amount, of, in my opinion, has an immense amount of potential uh, with uh, a, a, a huge database of, um, of of novel compounds to advance over the coming years. If we look to some of the North American markets where, uh, you know, psychedelic-assisted therapies are, are more well understood, uh, we can see that Emiria, you know, today is trading at a, you know, a fraction of some of the other businesses that are looking to um, advance these novel therapies. So, you know, I know that the company at the moment is in preclinic is in a preclinical phase, but you know, fast forward, you know, six, 12, 18 months, you know, once these preclinical uh, um, studies have been complete completed, um, I think that Emiria will be sort of, um, you know, very advanced compared to its peers um, globally, but particularly, you know, uh, on the Australian exchange. Um, next slide. Yes, so, you know, as I touched on before, over the next 12 months, Miriam intends to deliver results from multiple preclinical programs on select MDMA analogs. Um, you know, there are a number of, uh, you know, pro uh, trials ongoing uh, in the US and Australia. You know, obviously, they've got a massive uh, pool of, you know, 140 screened molecules at the moment and growing. Um, so, the next uh, you know, phase is going to be basically taking the results from the preclinical screening, um, selecting uh, the best leads um, for each of those um, potential uh, indication uh, pigeonholes, and then moving on to uh, efficacy, efficacy study studies in animal models. Um, the, the, uh, I've been told that the company will continue to expand the MDMA analog library, um, and you know. And a big part of expansion of that library um, and and uh, you know advancing those programs is filing uh, additional patent families and um, and then working to commercialize um, that those assets. And again, I think one distinction needs to be made. Um, I know there's it's you know when you know perhaps rewind twelve months where there was a lot of uh, excitement over you know the uh, renaissance of psychedelic therapies. Um, I think we've got to, you know, we've got to sort of look at the commercial reality of a lot of these um, programs, whereby, um, you know, it's very hard to sort of get a foothold in um, 
in intellect, you know, and develop a significant uh, IP position for established molecules of LSD, you know, psilocybin and MDMA. I think, you know, if you are improving, um, you know, the performance of those molecules through novel, through development of novel um, analogs, there's a much clearer way of defining commercial value for companies in, in the sector. And I think that's that's uh, where Emiria really shines and that it's got a very, very uh, large asset to develop um, in the coming years. Next slide. Yes, so just a bit of a, a summary, um, sort of encapsulating what we touched on before. Um, so, you know, you know, number one, uh, Emiria has developed a world-class proprietary ultra-pure CBD product uh, with more formulations on the way and its lead formulation in phase three studies um, for in order you know to try to basically aim aiming towards developing a registered medicine in Australia as the first step. Um, it has it has no THC or impurities, a high bio bioavailability and low patient variability um, and and slow release in its in its uh, in its action. And this particular um, dose form can support multiple indications, both in Australia and the US. Um, it has, a, a, you know, perhaps we didn't touch on it as much as I would have liked, but the company has the largest um, curated real-world data uh, set on cannabinoid medicines, um, and it's using that massive data asset to power its clinical programs, particularly with reference to the, uh, its cannabinoid programs. Um, it has a substantial R&D pipeline of MDMA analogs in partnership with a leading Australian university. And, um, you know, all of these, all of this work is basically, basically being done by a world-class team with a number of major previous FDA and TGA uh, registrations, um, uh, you know, um, so we, we, you know, the company is in very good hands to basically achieve its its um, its goals because we're basically being um, uh, you know led by a team that has done this before on many on many occasions. And I think uh, I think that's all we've got from our end. I think I'll hand over for some questions if that's okay at this at this point. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Dr. David. Uh, just before I kick off, uh, first, I'll just confirm that I am also a shareholder in Emiria and have been for about 18 months now. And so, yeah, David, thank you for that. You know, I think Emiria, from an investor perspective, obviously I'm a shareholder, so I, I think very highly of it. But just even from a societal perspective, I think it's going to bring so many benefits uh, to people. And if I use uh, a personal example, I, I have a family member who who had uh, a bowel cancer. And she was, and even though uh cannabinoid products over the counter are legal in australia there's no tga product that's actually approved to be uh to, to be sold to to patients and so even though she was trying to get her hands on some cannabis products uh, just to help her in her the end of her life stage uh she couldn't get anything um, yes. so i think it's going to bring a lot of relief to patients and she actually passed away only a few days ago so when it when it comes when it comes to you know real life examples you know these companies aren't just you know, there as uh, uh, tools or vehicles to, you know, make some money, but they're also bringing some real benefits to society, which is great. Um, just from a, a question perspective, I think they're very, it's very clear on their cannabis product, you know, the, the, the pipeline that's coming up and the, the things that they still need to work through. But from the MDMA and psilocybin uh, perspective, like you said, it, it's, uh, it's a, a sector that's getting a lot of traction, especially in the U.S., but what's going to be the trigger for Emiria to actually take this forward to potentially doing some some real studies on animals <clears> and potentially, you know, sooner or later on humans? Yeah, look, I, I, that's a very very good question. I mean, I think um, I think that's going to that's the crux of it, really. You know, what is what does the future look like? How do we get the, these patients advanced to um, you know the, the point where we've got confidence to take them through clinical programs? So I think you know, although it's perhaps the more um you know the more boring stage in a, in a company's life cycle um over the last you know 12 to 18 months the company has steadily been working through uh, from what i can see uh been working through its preclinical screening program so basically that's the first step needed to 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 narrow down uh you know which of which of those 140 plus compounds are are um you know, are, are interesting for various reasons 
to, to move them uh, further down that uh, preclinical pathway to get to a point where we can start making um, overtures towards a clinical program. So, um, you know, the, that basically comprises of, of, of screening. So I think that they've done a lot of work with, with their European uh, company, Eurofins. Um, they have done some work in metabolic studies. And I think that they referenced uh, some of that in a, in a, in a, um, uh, in a recent preza where they looked at the, the half-life of, of, of these analogs. Um, so they've taken all of that information um, they're, they're, they're now doing some animal studies with um, psychogenics in, in the US. And basically, the outcome of that is really to get to a point where they've got um, a number of compounds that they can start to really move towards um, a, a clinical pathway. So uh, I think there's nothing that's um, sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, st stopping that moving forward. It's just a, a matter of time. And I think we're well advanced al along that along that journey. Awesome. And just my last question, and you touched on it very briefly around our, our leadership team, our management team. Can you just talk briefly about who, who they are and, and a bit of their experience? Because I know we've got a link to GW Pharma um, and, the, and, and the product that they have released. Yes. Look, I mean, I think I, I didn't include a, um, a, a, a slide. That's okay. You can just talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll just get the, yeah. So basically we're, we're led by a gentleman by the name of um, uh, Dr. Michael Winlow. Um, so he's the managing director of, director of the company. Um, he is a medical, uh, as I said, he's a medical doctor. He's, he's done his MBA at Stanford. Um, previously worked at, at Palantir over in the US um, and Linear, which is an early, which is a, um, uh, a clinical research facility here based in Western Australia. Um, we've got uh, Matt Callahan, who's a founder and a non-executive director. He's got four FDA approvals behind his name. Um, he's had uh, significant venture capital experience and um, a, a background of, a, of having a successful exit um, from Isutica to Iroko. And um, Dr. Stuart Washer, Washer who, is, who is the executive chairman, uh, another founder of the company, um, founded multiple ASX companies uh, involved in multiple trade sales. And uh, Professor Sir John Took, non-executive director of the company, um, he's a gentleman based over in the UK. He's, you know, knighted for services to medicine um you know clinical research uh you know he's a lifelong clinical researcher and he's also an advisor to the nhs um uh, we've also got one further team member i'd like to touch on uh dr karen smith who is the u.s executive director uh you know very very accomplished um c-suite executive has overseen 20 fda approvals plus uh in her career with multiple billion dollar m a um uh you know acquisitions and you know, funnily enough, she was also um, she also had a role uh, in uh, a jazz farmer, um, you know, and that that was the company I referenced earlier in the presentation that acquired GW Pharma um, um, with Epidiolex as its lead asset. Awesome, fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. Very interesting company um, coming from a shareholder, and so uh, you wrap up our Australian team here. So thank you for yourself and everyone else who participated in the. Uh, in this series and we'll speak soon thank you very much all right well that does it for the stock pitch world cup team australia fadi thank you again for moderating all this you know for folks to follow you where can they go and get everything they need to stay up to date with the gladiator hc yeah, well, the main place to be honest is Twitter at the gladiator hc all, all of my the things I'm involved in kind of uh, center around being communicated via Twitter. So if you follow me there, you'll find out everything that I'm doing. Very good. All right. I'll see you. I'll see you. I'll see you. Let's go. All right. Awesome. Uh, all right, Fadi. <laughs> thank you very much, man. Thanks, man. This presentation is a service of SNN Inc. or an affiliate thereof, collectively SNN, and all information presented is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities, nor is this an offer or sale of any security. Neither SNN nor its representatives are licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, or with any 
any state securities regulatory authority. SNM provides no assurances as to the accuracy or completeness of the information presented, including information regarding any specific company's plans or its ability to effectuate any plan and possess no actual knowledge of any specific company's operations, capabilities, intent, resources, or experience. Any opinions expressed in this presentation are solely attributed to each individual asserting the same and do not reflect the opinion of SNN. Individuals who appear in this presentation may have a financial stake, stock ownership, or otherwise in the company or companies presented. Information contained in this presentation may contain forward-looking statements as defined under Section 27A of the Securities Act of 1933 and Section 21B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Forward-looking statements are based upon expectations, estimates, and projections at the time the statements are made and involve risks and uncertainties that could cause actual events to differ materially from those anticipated. Therefore, viewers are cautioned against placing any undue reliance upon any forward-looking statement that may be found in this and any SNN presentation. SNN does not engage in providing advice, making recommendations, issuing reports, or furnishing analysis on any of the company's security strategies or information presented. SNN recommends you consult a licensed investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this or any SNN presentation. Furthermore, it is encouraged that you invest carefully and consult investment-related information available on the websites of the SEC at www.sec.gov and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA, at FINRA, F-I-N-R-A dot org.